You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome from the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Nine days ago, President Joe Biden met with Russian leader Vladimir Putin, and he did not look into his eyes and see a nice man. To the contrary, This meeting was historic because it appears to have taken a very, very different turn than all of the other meetings before. Many of you may be wondering about Vladimir Putin and was he really a KGB agent on the other side of the Berlin Wall as it crumbled? So the answer to this and all of your other questions about Vladimir Putin comes from Rob Dannenberg, who sat down with us some time ago. He was the Moscow station chief for the Central Intelligence Agency, not once, but twice. And for those of you who are fans of the questioning of world leaders afterward, shout out to journalist Rachel Scott, who confronted Vladimir Putin, asking him what he was so afraid of when it came to political opposition. Thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to National Security Law Today. We're your source for growth in the area of national security law during the nationwide protests, the COVID-19 pandemic quarantine, and all the time. I'm Yvette. And I'm Nicole. Quick disclaimer because lawyers need and live by disclaimers. The lawyers on NSLT are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. I'm Elisa. Our podcast today is about Russia and Putin. We're going to give you some facts and history on this second longest serving leader of Russia in history. And he has also managed to pull off what might be remembered as the single most successful external intelligence operation ever. As Americans battle each other over the efficacy of masks and quarrel over politics, is Putin smiling with satisfaction at the disunity of the most powerful nation in the world? You don't have history. You don't have context. So before we head into the election season, we know it's time to talk about Putin. Our guest today is Robert Dannenberg, consultant on geopolitical and security risk, and was a managing director and head of the Office of Global Security for Goldman Sachs. Mr. Dannenberg worked for the CIA, the agency for those in the in the know, for 24 years, where he was chief of operations for the Counterterrorism Center, chief of the Central Eurasia Division, and chief of the CIA's Information Operations Center. He is a recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, the Donovan Award for Operational Excellence, the George H.W. Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism, and the Director's Award. Not too shabby. He is the person that other CIA officers identify as a leading expert on Putin and Russia. And no wonder he served in Moscow twice and has dealt directly with many in Putin's inner circle. So thank you so much for being here. Well, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, and although I'm not I'm not a lawyer, I do have my own disclaimer. It is true that I spent 24 years as an officer in the Central Intelligence Agency, all of it until my very last day as a CIA employee, as an undercover officer in the clandestine service or the Directorate of Operations, as it was known then. Uh, but I am not violating any uh, any secrecy agreement or confidentiality agreement that I have with the agency or the United States government. I petitioned for and received permission from the agency to disclose my background. But I am also here acting in my capacity as an individual and not representing any organization, uh, government or private sector. 
Rob, we're glad we're here. We're really glad you're here. But give us a quick history of Putin, how he rose to where he is today. And as part of that, can you talk about how his background has framed the way in which he sees the United States? Well, as many people know, Vladimir Putin was born in St. Petersburg, Leningrad, it was known at the time. And uh, after completing his university studies, uh, became an officer in the Russian uh, intelligence service, the KGB. And, uh, and you know, had a, a reasonably successful career. He was in the, uh, he spent most of it in the first chief directorate, which is the rough equivalent of of the CIA in that it's responsible for Russia, for Soviet overseas intelligence operations. Uh, Putin was stationed in Leipzig, uh, East Germany, uh, during the time that the, uh, that the, the wall came down and, uh, and Germany began the process of reunification. Uh, which was 1989. Putin left, uh, left Leipzig in 1990, returned to St. Petersburg and worked uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a role for the, uh, what was then the second chief director of the Russian Internal Security Service, which is now the Russian uh, FSB, uh, at Lenin, Leningrad State University, where his responsibility was to identify promising students who might be recruits for the uh, potential recruits for the KGB. He became quite disaffected with the process of the disintegration of the Soviet Union that he was witnessing. And, uh, and uh, according to Putin's own timeline, he, re he retired from the KGB with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in 1991. Um, there's some disparity about the exact time when Putin left the KGB. At any rate, in somewhere in 1990, 1991, he began working for one of his old professors, Anatoly Sobchak, who was a senior official in St. Petersburg, who then became the mayor in St. Petersburg. And one of Putin's responsibilities there was administering contracts with foreign companies on behalf of the city of St. Petersburg, which for an enterprising young officer uh, in beginning his political career, there was a lot of opportunity to take advantage of those, of his experience as, a, as an intelligence officer and his understanding of, of how, to, uh, how to operate in corrupt systems to turn that, uh, that position into, into quite a lucrative position, both for himself and for those uh, that, uh, that expected to get a, uh, a piece of the transactions for which Putin was responsible. Uh, in, uh, um, and, and then he graduated, become the head of the uh, Committee for External Relations of the Mayor's Office of St. Petersburg. Again, another, I mean, for somebody with a relatively little political experience, a pretty prominent uh, position, you know, roughly equivalent is, might be to like a chief of staff of a major city in the, of the mayor of a major city in the United States. Um, and in 1994, so four years into his political career, he was appointed first deputy chairman of the government of St. Petersburg. Uh, and uh, in 1996, his patron, uh, Anatoly Sobchak, uh, lost his bid for re-election in St. Petersburg. So Putin moved to Moscow as the deputy chief uh, of the presidential property management departed, department headed by Pavel Baradin. But, you know, again, if you're, if you're the head of the presidential property 
management department. There's a lot of opportunity there in a collapsing society uh, for, for, for an enterprising officer to exercise uh, graft and corruption. And Putin seemed to have caught the eye of then President of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, who um, uh, kept Putin in that job until 19, uh, 1997 and then moved him to a position of the head of the Russian, uh, uh, he, was, he was deputy, Putin's deputy chief of the presidential staff, where he stayed until 1998. I mean, it's a little bit of a history of Putin, but what I'm really, the point I'm trying to make here is that Putin did have some, uh, some experience in the post-Soviet governance, both in a major city, St. Petersburg, and in Moscow and demonstrated himself to be uh, a trustworthy and reliable officer in the context of what that meant in Russia at the time, which meant that, that you knew how to keep your mouth shut when you needed to keep your mouth shut and you needed to know and you knew who needed to get paid and that you made sure that they got paid on time. Um, uh, having, having established his credentials both in St. Petersburg and Moscow, um, uh, Yeltsin uh, asked Putin to take over the Russian Internal Security Service, which is, that, which is the FSB, where he was uh, a director for just about two years before then being appointed uh, one of the first deputy prime ministers in Russia. At the time, oddly, there, was, there were three first deputy prime ministers. I'm not, not quite sure how that works out. But at any rate, Yeltsin at, that, at the time that Putin was named to that position. The very same day, uh, Yeltsin indicated that he, that he would favor Putin to be his successor as the president of Russia. Now, at the time, uh, many people, both inside of Russia and out, felt that Yeltsin's capacity for leadership was declining. He he committed some some embarrassing uh, acts. I mean, famously. Uh, appearing drunk, getting off the Russian presidential aircraft in Shannon Airport in Ireland, and both inside inside of Russia and certainly in the power structures in Russia, there were many who felt that it was that it was long overdue for Yeltsin to leave. Putin agreed to run for president, uh, but before that, uh, Yeltsin resigned, and Putin, as prime minister, became acting president of Russia. And well. The rest is history. That's that's late 1999, and here we are in um, in 2020. And Putin's uh, Putin's still the president of Russia. Yes, I know there was a brief interim period where, according to the Russian Constitution, he couldn't run for three consecutive terms, so he became prime minister uh, for one election season. And Dmitry Medvedev, Putin's prime minister, became that became the president, and then they flip flopped again, and Putin has been president since for another two terms. And uh, as many of you might know, on the 1st of July, uh, Russia approved uh, uh, amendments to their constitution, allowing Putin to run for president again. He is, uh, he'll turn 68 years old in October. He's in excellent health. And in all likelihood, we're going to see Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin running Russia until 2036. Now, as part of, you know, one, one of the things you asked me, uh, Elisa, was, was uh, how, how was Putin's view of the United States shaped during this period? Well, certainly the most formative uh, and impactful impression of the United States, other than what was put into his head in, during his training as a KGB officer, 
was what he observed during the during the fall of the Berlin Wall, and uh, and the the process of the integration of East Germany into into West Germany, and the and the collapse of the Warsaw Treaty Organization, ultimately the collapse of the uh, of the Soviet Union its, itself. For for Putin, these were formative and impactful events orchestrated in Putin's mind by the leadership of the United States or the West more broadly. And Putin has often remarked, and, and to this very day, if asked, he will say that, that he views the single biggest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. That's a long time. Remember, we had World War I and World War II. There was a lot of stuff happened in the 20th century. But in Putin's mind, the biggest event and the most catastrophic event was the collapse of the Soviet Union, orchestrated uh, by the United States. And as Putin would go on to articulate, the establishment of rather than a bipolar world where, you, where Moscow and Washington had the shared responsibility for managing crises in the world, uh, you, had a, you had what emerged as a unipolar world led by the United States and the West and the, that category of the West, Putin lumps the EU and NATO together. And his view of the United States hasn't changed. 20 years as president of Russia and a chance firsthand to, in his view, rebuild Russia as a military and geopolitical power. Um, it, it hasn't tempered his view of the United States uh, a single bit. So that is really, really helpful context and it leads right into my question. Um, I'd love to focus for a moment on Putin's view of NATO, um, the now defunct Warsaw Pact and what events and experiences around those institutions shaped Putin's views. I could, I could give you two hours worth of history on the development of NATO and the Warsaw Treaty Organization in the context of the post-war world. What's interesting, I think, is in Putin's mind uh, that the origins of NATO were, were such that its principal objective was to serve as the instrument of containment of the Soviet Union. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Warsaw Treaty Organization, in Putin's view, the reason for NATO's existence had gone away. Putin also believed that, uh, that, uh, that promises were made to the Russian Federation by the United States and by NATO that after the collapse of the Warsaw Treaty Organization, there would be no eastward expansion of NATO. And now, as you might know, there are several NATO members that are former Warsaw Treaty Organization countries. And I would point out to you specifically the, uh, the uh, principal point of irritation for, uh, for Putin and those that surround him is the accession of the Baltic states to NATO. The Baltic states, as you'll know if you have any understanding of their geography, border the Russian Federation. So in Putin's mind, this military organization, and don't, don't believe, I mean, Putin doesn't believe any of the arguments that are occasionally made that NATO is a peacekeeping organization or it's this, that, or the other thing. In Putin's mind, it is a military organization. It has demonstrated in the post-Soviet world aggressive actions, specifically NATO operations in Yugoslavia or NATO operations in the Middle East and North Africa, which Putin would say are aggressive and in violation of the UN Charter. Uh, but now this organization has expanded to Russia's very borders. 
and you've had uh, even post, uh, even former states inside the Soviet Union, like the Republic of Georgia, expressed interest in NATO membership. This is completely unacceptable to Putin and those around him. So he'd be perfectly happy as a principal achievement now late into his uh, tenure as tenure as uh, president of Russia, if he could or orchestrate the disintegration of NATO uh, and or the EU. I mean, for, for Putin, the, the EU is the economic engine that outside of the United States that, that, uh, that funds and drives NATO. For him, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's a distinction without a difference. The organizations are, are, are the same in his view. So any actions that you might have observed, observed Putin take to weaken the EU, support for Catalonian succession, support for Brexit, for example, um, support for various secessionist movements uh, or anti-government movements anywhere in Western Europe, all achieve the objective of weakening the EU and thereby weakening NATO. I'd like to make a couple of quick points about Putin's worldview that aren't often remarked upon in people uh, assessing Putin's actions. There are some things that come from your training as an intelligence officer that that change your worldview and change your means of thinking. I, as 24 years in the CIA, I can tell you absolutely that I, I am shaped as an individual and the way I view the world by my training and experience as a CIA officer. It's the same with KGB officers, but there's a fundamental distinction. The KGB officer is taught to look at the world as a zero sum game. What hurts my enemy must by definition be good for me. There's no, there's no analogous line of thinking in KGB training to the idea that a rising tide lifts all boats. Putin doesn't look at the world like that. The second thing, the critical thing to understand about Putin's thinking is that the ends justify the means. Whatever tool you use or whatever act you take to achieve what you believe to be a valid objective in protecting or supporting the interests of the state is completely justified. There's no, there's no, there's no morality in that in 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 his understanding of how the ends justify the means. Morality in the Western or the Western Christian sense of of morality it just doesn't come into play. And uh, and although you know, it, I mean, to be fair, Putin was clandestinely baptized by his mother into the Russian Orthodox Church, and openly uh, practices Russian uh, Orthodoxy. Uh, and has during his entire term as uh, as president. And to speak a little bit about sort of other engines of state power, we see across the world that very wealthy Russians, Russian oligarchs are frequently um, major landowners, powerful actors in the global economy. Uh, and our listeners may not understand the way that wealthy Russians have both acquired their wealth and at least for some of them, maintain, help Putin maintain a certain level of control in Russia. Could you speak more about that? Yeah, sure. And that's an important point, Nicole. The system that Putin has built and now maintains in Russia, you know, some people label it as Putinism, uh, is, uh, is a derivative of, of the experience of post-Soviet Russia. I mean, okay, so the Soviet Union, a communist state, it collapses. All the enterprises were owned by the state. And 
if you're going to, if you're now the Russian Federation and you're Boris Yeltsin and you're its first president and you're trying to build an economy that can function uh, so that you can, you know, citizens have revenues so you can tax it, you can build a healthcare system, you build the education system, you can fund the military, all the things that a state does uh, rely on a functioning economy. And with the collapse of the state system and the gospel on the government control of the economy, you had some enterprising Russian individuals, both in the state and outside the state, now known as oligarchs or the Sloviki, who took advantage of the opportunity to purchase state assets at rock bottom prices, which they did. And have in the in particularly for those who who were engaged in the purchase of Russian national resources or mining or extraction industries, oil, gas, uh, diamonds, gold, that sort of thing. They became fabulously wealthy in a hurry. So you and and they built quite political, quite powerful political constituencies during the during the time of of Boris Yeltsin's presidency. When Putin came in as president, uh, some nine years after after uh, Yeltsin had been running the country, one of the first things that that Putin realized was that the country wasn't run by the government anymore. It was run by these very powerful oligarchs and or representatives of powerful state institutions like the, the Internal and External Security Service, the military, the Ministry of the Interior, which in Russia is not like the Ministry, the Department of the Interior in the United States. It's not responsible for trees and plants. It controls militia and police forces. Very powerful institution. So one of the first things Putin did when he became president of Russia was to, was to establish the process of reasserting control over the oligarchs, those powerful economic figures, and over the, the organs of state security. Put his own guys in charge. Um, and in the case of the oligarchs, uh, uh, he took early uh, and, and pretty significant uh, action against one of the most powerful and politically active of the oligarchs, Khodorkovsky, the head of then uh, Yukos Oil. Uh, arrested him on charges of corruption, put him in jail, and, uh, and dismantled Yukos, sending a very powerful message to the other oligarchs that hey, if you don't want to play ball by the uh, on the by the rules that I'm setting up, you're going to get the Horokovsky treatment and end up in the gulag for 20 years and a pauper. And in the case of Horokovsky, as many of you might know, he caught uh, uh, tuberculosis while in prison. He's now uh, been released and is living in Brussels, last I heard. But it was a powerful message to the to the oligarchs, and uh, I don't think anyone would dispute now that. Putin has firmly established himself as the as the boss of bosses among the super rich in Russia and the uh, the dominant player in the activities of the Russian security services and the and the military. But as you correctly point out, uh, Nicole, a number of Russian oligarchs didn't feel comfortable operating under the Putin system and moved their enterprises overseas to. Uh, principally to London, very receptive environment at the time for wealthy Russians, less, re less receptive these days, uh, or other countries, Switzerland, Israel, uh, and even in some cases, the United States. Okay, so um, uh, th this brings us to another sort of <clears throat> 
reach of Putin, which is Russian internal, external rather, intelligence operations, which at least lately seem to have reached some sort of pitch. Um, so to me personally, the greatest negative impact on our country is from three Russian efforts. Uh, the first being the 2016 election interference, which included, of course, the hacking of the DNC. Um, the second sort of related um, effort, which is frankly ongoing, uh, was the weaponization of social media in 2016 with the help of entities like Cambridge Analytica. Um, and let me add that um, those efforts, uh, I imagine, are still going on today. Um, and uh, the effort to torpedo the American economy most recently um, through manipulation of OPEC. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about some of these efforts? Yeah, I, look, and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, getting, getting back to the point I was trying to make a moment ago about uh, the ends justify the means. Uh, certainly, uh, actions by the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service and the uh, Russian Military Inter Intelligence Service in the last couple of years uh, really, uh, really show uh, Putin's mentality in this regard. Uh, the Arguably, the first famous such operation was the polonium poisoning of a former uh, Russian internal security office, FSB officer, Litvinenko, in the Millennium Hotel in Russia. A horrible way to die for anyone who followed that case. And there's plenty of video on YouTube and, uh, and information available on the Internet on the poisoning of Litvinenko. Died a horrible, miserable death. And then fast forward to just a summer ago, you had the attempted poisoning of Skripal in Salisbury by two Russian in, uh, military intelligence officers, allegedly tra who traveled to Salisbury to view the quite view-worthy uh, cathedral there. Uh, again, an, a, you know, an, an attempt to kill uh, a, a defector, uh, Skripal, uh, who happened to be in the company of his daughter in a public park in London? Quite audacious, uh, I, I think. So you could you could argue if you you know, really wanted to that that Putin's already nuked London, polonium at a hotel in in uh, in Mayfair and uh, in a in a poisoning in uh, in Salisbury. Pretty aggressive actions. There's there's no shortage of such actions. I mentioned. Uh, and you asked about oligarchs uh, leaving uh, Russia and taking residence in London, probably the arguably most famous of which is uh, Boris Berezovsky, who uh, was a, a reasonably articulate critic of the Russia that Putin was building. And, and he mysteriously hung himself in, his, in the bathroom of his flat in London. Um, there's a long list of uh, opponents of Putin's regime who have been uh, been killed, uh, either I mean both inside of Russia and a Politkovsky I would mention, um, Boris Nemtsov. Uh, you can, the the list is seemingly inexhaustible, uh, and what it what it shows to me is that Putin doesn't really care anymore about how the West might react to this stuff. It's more important to him to achieve the objective he's trying to achieve is let people know that, that there's no place in the world where they can go and hide if they're going to be critics of 
of Putin's Russia or Putin himself. Um, talking about some of the bigger picture things that you, that you mentioned in your question, I couldn't agree more about the impact of Russian interference in the 2016 election, their uh, preparations for interference in uh, the coming 2020 elections, and their uh, largely failed attempt to damage the U.S. economy by manipulating their participation in the OPEC plus um, uh, oil supply uh, limitation agreements. I'll come to that in just a minute, but I, I have a slightly contrarian view on, on, on the uh, manipulation in the 2016 election. Much of the discussion on what Russia was trying to achieve in that I think is misplaced. It gets lost in the argument of they were, oh, they're trying to elect Trump or, or trying to damage Clinton. Well, I, I, I think that's probably true in both, both cases. On the margins, I don't think Putin really cared who won the election. If Clinton had won, I can assure you uh, Putin had plenty of information that would have undermined a Clinton presidency. Uh, in the case of Trump, he had plenty of information on, on Trump and was prepared for that. What Putin was betting on with a Trump presidency was that Trump, Trump would bring an inexperienced team of advisors with him into office. In the case of Clinton, um, Putin knew perfectly well who, what Clinton's national security team would look like and, and probably was confident that they would, they would take a hardline position against Russia. Uh, candidate Trump had articulated a point of view, not unreasonable in my view, that to solve some of the significant geopolitical problems on the planet, Syria, for example, Libya, Iraq, North Korea, it's important for the United, or terrorism more broadly, it's important for the United States to have a functioning relationship with Russia. I think the problem for Trump is that, uh, is that you know, Putin's a guy, he's been, at the time, he's been running Russia for about 16 years. He'd seen U.S. presidents come and go, British prime ministers come and go, German chancellors come and go, French presidents come and go. He beat them all in Putin's mind. And so for a guy like Trump, who's famous for not being a detailed person or paying attention to his briefing books, uh, you're going to be at a disadvantage when you meet a guy like, like Putin. And so probably on the margins, the Putin, Putin prepared, uh, was preparing for and hoping that, uh, that Trump would win the election. But that's, that's not really the point of the operation. The operation was to create political, political chaos, undermine the faith of your average American in the American political system. Uh, and, and he's achieved that with stunning success. I mean, compare where we are as a nation in 2020 from where we were in 2016. For the cost of tens of thousands of dollars, to hire some kids at the Internet Research Institute in St. Petersburg or wherever he might have used them to, to foment social unrest, to create this, this erosion of the American political system in Putin's mind. Remember where we started this conversation, his principal geopolitical adversary, for the cost of tens of thousands, it's a, it'll go down as, a, as a, I'm, I'm on record as saying is, in the, in the history of espionage, arguably the most effective covert action ever um, initiated. And, it, and it's effective to this day. There's still divisions about whether Putin wanted Trump to win or consensus seems to be he did, and for reasons I articulated a moment ago, 
you know, I tend to be aligned with that position, but it misses the fundamental point that as we prepare as a nation for voting in November, we're, everybody's looking at the process differently. You have the president of the United States, the congressional leaders, you have the head of the national director for counterintelligence, an arm, arm's long uh, list of officials saying the Russia's preparing to manipulate the election and the Chinese and the Iranians are playing along. And I guarantee you, uh, come the first Wednesday in November, there's gonna be all kinds of accusations from both sides of the political spectrum that, that the results are invalid because of foreign manipulation. And Putin can sit back and say, you know, so sort of, I think it was a vet's initial uh, observation. Maybe he's sitting back, sitting back smiling. He absolutely is sitting back and smiling. I mean, he just got himself uh, an amended constitution, and he's going to be president of Russia as long as he wants to be 2036. He's 68 years old. Now you can do the math another 12, year, 12 years on that. Uh, and he's watching the political collapse of the United States. Fantastic. One, one small mention, because he brought up OPEC, uh, Putin made a bit of a miscalculation there. Uh, Putin has, hasn't made a lot of mistakes, in my view, in the 20 years he's been running Russia, but that was one of them. Uh, he gave firm instructions to Novak, his minister of energy, to not go along with, uh, with an extension of the OPEC plus uh, supply limit agreement, anticipating that the Saudis would... Um, would back down first, that they would blink. The Saudis didn't. And what happened at the same time is, of course, you had the, the COVID virus spreading around the world and creating a, a collapse in demand for oil. So oil, you know, Russia's economy needs oil at $42 a year old to balance their budget. And when it drops to, I mean, people were basically two months ago were giving away oil. That's a big, big hurt for, for Russia. And that was, and while, Part of the part of Putin's instruction to his minister of energy Novak was, let's 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 create some uncertainty in and a price drop in oil to put U.S. shale production out of business. He didn't anticipate the the collapse of demand that put all the producers out of business, including Russia. So that might have that might have backfired on him. Wow, that is a ton of information. You've really uh, helped our audience come up to speed on the issue of Russia and Putin and set context for our podcast next week. Thanks so much, Robert Dannenberg, and tune in for uh, the rest of our conversation on our next uh, Thursday release. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.